Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to be taking a little trip down memory lane to an event that took place 50 years ago. And we have somebody here to talk to us about that who is an exemplar of living history. And yet for its relative recency, this is unknown history to many. And it should be better known because basically the way Lutheranism in America looks the way it does today is because of this seminal event. And that is that on February 20th, 1974, there came into existence a new seminary called Concordia Seminary in Exile, better known by its shortened name, Seminex. And that occurred when students and a majority of the faculty walked out of the campus of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, uh, at an address 801 DeMunn Avenue, so it was often nicknamed 801. And they decided to take up classes elsewhere. And this was a voluntary exile in protest about some outrageous theological and ecclesiastical machinations. However, I have to say this uh, history turned out much like when the many... um, Uh, objectors to creeping communism in Czechoslovakia in 1948 walked out and said, we are not going to be part of this corrupt government anymore, to which the corrupt government said, that's great, we will take over. And thus ensued 40 (laughs) years of communism in Czechoslovakia. So anyway, with that um, extremely provocative beginning, of course, our guest in question here is none other than dad, Paul Hidlicky, who was a student, not exactly in the walkout, but very much had a front row seat to these events. Dad, you are a Seminex grad, and this was 50 years ago, and I think you have a lot to say about it. Yeah, in the uh, hindsight of 50 years, and the dust has still not settled, there's a, any time you try to discuss this um, history, uh, the, um, the hackles are raised, and the defenses go up, and um, the upset uh, over it uh, reverberates down through the decades. Uh, so we're going to be uh, kind of treading into troubled waters on this podcast. Uh, I want to reflect on my own experience of it, and then as we get through it uh, on its aftermath up into t- today, you already noticed something I think is very important. Um, uh, even if it is a rather provocative comparison to what happened in 1948 in Czechoslovakia. Um, But it's true that, and I often reflected even back at the time, that the student walkout followed by the faculty handed the institution over on a silver platter uh, to the forces of reaction. And um, if we had stayed and forced them through the public spectacle of, of, of heresy trials, uh, their uh, uh, weightlessness would have been exposed for all to see, um, and it would have probably had a very different outcome. Um, uh, so, you know, but that's water under the bridge, and we really want to talk, just because American church history, Lutheran church history, is so little taught any longer, that as you were saying, few folks today even know about the event named Seminex. And I would say, Sarah, even fewer 
are equipped to understand it because Seminex was a theological event. And that's what I really want to get at today. Well, let me just say, as we're going along, um, uh, certainly listeners know that we are openly critical of our own Lutheran Church, which is not the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And so I would say, especially to any ELCA listeners out there who um, are expecting a triumphalist narrative or just think it's irrelevant to them, you need to know the story because the ELCA is the way it is because of what happened, just as the Missouri Synod is the way it is because of what happened here. Right, and what happened was a theological event. Even at back at that time, and maybe even up to today, the news reporting interpreted this uh, student-initiated exile as an instance of the fundamentalist modernist uh, conflict that you know had been going on in the United States for over a century, but really kind of reached a climax in the 1920s with the famous Scopes trial. Um, on uh, teaching evolution in the public school. Now, there's a grain of truth in this framing, the fundamentalist modernist conflict, as the entire Christian theological tradition has had to engage the rise of science uh, and its discoveries. And Sarah, you and I do that regularly on this podcast. We finished last season, didn't we? with a couple of episodes on brain science. And early hominids before Homo sapiens sapiens. That's right, yeah. Now, the way in which science penetrated into the sacred precincts of Christian theology is in the historical criticism of the Bible. And that, just to unpack that quickly, quickly, that's simply to say, uh, what does a... Um, a modern historical approach trying to ascertain what really happened in history, what light does that shed on the biblical texts that we actually possess? That's historical criticism. The criticism of the text by the reconstruction of V.S. Eigentlich gewesen ist, how it actually happened in von Ranke's famous formulation. And moreover, The modern phenomena of fundamentalism, and I stress that, the modern phenomenon of fundamentalism arose as a defensive reaction against this penetration uh, into the sacred precincts of theology by the historical criticism of the Bible. Now, I want to grant that, stipulate that from the outset. That's the grain of truth in the news reporting then and up to today. And as, you know, as listeners to our podcast also know, we regularly use historical criticism when we talk about books of the Bible. You know, actually, Dad, whenever I look at the exegetical work of um, biblical interpreters of any theological heft at all who officially come from churches that reject historical criticism, they use historical criticism. They just don't admit that's what they're doing, or they find ways to talk around it or rename it in some way so it keeps them in the clear ecclesiastically, um, but allows them to still use the tools. And I think we can also say not every so-called result of historical criticism is good, just like not everything undertaken as a scientific experiment actually proves anything scientific. So I, I think that that needs to be said as well. Yeah, of course. And there's a lot of problems with the very model of historical criticism, but that's not our topic for today. That would be like an imminent critique. 
uh, historical criticism could be doing its job in a better way, X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank, right? Right. right. Okay. But I want to argue that Seminex was a theological event. You've said that several times. So tell us specifically what you mean by that. I mean by that the battle hymn we sang throughout, we on the Seminex side sang every time the conflict became volatile. And that hymn was the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is, it's his new creation by water and the word and so forth. That hymn is familiar to everybody. And that was the fundamental assertion that we were making theologically. There is the foundation that is laid is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and no other foundation may be laid, not even the foundation of Holy Scripture. And in fact, Holy Scripture is rather founded by this event of Jesus Christ and his new creation, the church. So I would guess, though, that your opponents said, we too assert that Jesus Christ as Lord is the foundation of the church, and the way you guys are handling the scripture is undermining Jesus as the one and only Lord of the church. Isn't that what they would have said? Well, let's get into that. Let's, I, I don't think so. I think the, what, the, way, what they, oh. the way they were asserting the authority of scripture actually uh, is a rival to the claim that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. And it doesn't have some other foundation underneath that foundation, right? Okay. Um, and we know, in, in fact, you know, as we know historically, the scriptures arose, the, uh, the Christian scriptures combining the literature of the New Testament to get bound together with the literature of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that arises after, several centuries after the uh, event of Jesus Christ that was transmitted uh, by the oral proclamation of the gospel. And then we have records of that oral proclamation in the literature of the New Testament. But the, here, the theological issue is this, Sarah. It was actually a conflict about authority in the church. What exactly, and maybe this may, maybe speaks to your objection, what it actually means to confess Jesus as Lord in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father in heaven. And that really then it kind of amounted to um, combating ecclesiologies, combating doctrines of the church. And this is, it's kind of a subtle distinction, which goes back to the conflict between the confessing church in Germany in the 1930s versus the so-called intact confessional churches, um, uh, uh, Lutheran churches, uh, that rejected the Barman Declaration. So it's a difference between the confessing church and the confessional church. You are not comparing the Missouri Synod authorities to Nazis, right? Let's just, in case anyone misreads what you just said that way, let's just clear that up. No, I'm not. I, I'm saying the distinction between the confessing church uh, and a confessional church goes back to this conflict. It's an ecclesiological uh, distinction, and, and this is the origin of it in 20th century church history. And here's the difference. The so-called intact German, German Lutheran churches, primarily in the south of Germany, um, 
refused to sign on to or support the confessing churches because it violated the purity of the Lutheran confessions to be in yoked together with members of the Reformed Church and the United Churches in Germany. And Barman was a pan-Protestant um, uh, confession to the peril of the time when um, uh, many in Germany, especially in the churches, were claiming that Adolf Hitler was the leader. And the Barman said, no, there's one word of God which we are to obey in life and death, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. The church is one foundation, particularly when that's threatened by an alternative messianism, as was there. And that's kind of what I think is, again, at the heart of the theological event of Seminex. We discovered suddenly that we were in the, um, the situation of not being a strictly confessional church hidebound to the 16th century book of Concord uh, against all comers, but we were in an event in which we had to be confessing the church's one foundation. Hmm. All right. So to continue the the comedy of me trying to put the best construction on the Missouri Synod and uh, comedy, of course, because uh, it, you could always go back and become a pastor of the Missouri Synod, but I never could. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I could get a sex change. Well, that'd be an interesting <laughs> test case. All right, let's just pass that one over. That's not going to happen. No, so but uh, what I understand from the deep history of the Missouri Synod as a Lutheran, German Lutheran church in America, and I'm getting this from Mary Todd's excellent study, Authority Vested, is that the reason probably why Missouri adhered so tightly, not just to the confessions as theo theological statements, but as an ecclesiastical identity, is because it comes out of um, migration from the forced union that the uh, German emperor did in Prussia and forcing reformed and Lutherans into United Church. And so there was a, a, a big exodus, mostly to the U.S., some also to Australia and maybe also to Brazil in order to enjoy religious freedom to be a confessional Lutheran church as opposed to a forced a politically forced united church, right? I mean, like the, the deep reason for this um, clinging to confessional identity comes out of that specific historical circumstance. And in that case, I certainly don't bear them any um, ill will for wanting to escape um, political machinations to make the church be what it's supposed to, what, you know, what a, the emperor thinks it ought to be. Well, sure. I And I, I, I don't... Um quarrel with that history at all. In fact, I'm rather sympathetic with it because, you know, Imperial Germany and then are aspiring to be Imperial Prussia and then eventually Bismarck's Germany, which became an Imperial nation state, you know, and wanted ecclesiastical uh, unity in order to undergird the authoritarian and Imperial uh, German political establishment through the 19th into the 20th century, and that even recapitulates in the 1930s with the whole German Christian movement for a united uh, Reichskirche, uh, uh, the, a church of the empire, right? A Protestant church of the empire. You know, of, of course, I think something like that should be resisted, um, but that's quite different from saying in principle. Uh, God said it, I believe it, 
That settles it. It was settled in the 16th century by the Book of Concord. End of discussion. Right. <laughs> you know, that's that's an entirely different posture, isn't it? So I, I think this is really important because what you're saying is that this is fundamentally an ecclesiological battle that took place. But I think on on the surface and in the texts, it looks like a confessional and scriptural interpretation battle. So I'm, I'm just, I, I want to nail this down because I think we, we will have to talk about the specific scriptural and confessional claims. But I mean, behind that, you're, what you are saying as somebody who was eyewitness to these events, that this has a lot, this is a deeper, it's more of an ecclesiological issue than it is a scriptural and confessional interpretation issue. Is that correct? Yes, I would say so, as long as we don't disconnect ecclesiology from Christology. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's a, 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 a bipolar claim. Jesus Christ alone, and what is Jesus Christ the Lord of? His community, his confessing community, which is what the church really is. Okay, so tell us how you you experienced the lordship of Jesus being undermined in the way of certain theological or scriptural or hermeneutical practices were being undertaken. Well, you know, I'm going to refer the listeners uh, to an excellent study um, of the demagoguery and skullduggery uh, <laughs> that, w that went on uh, in, in the lead up to Seminex in the book by James Berkey, and we'll put that in the show oh, notes. Oh, yeah, that's very uh, good. I actually published a review of it, and we'll put that in the show notes too. Um, so I don't. I'm not going to get way down in the weeds on the history because the history is something that's truly important to study in detail. And I refer listeners to that. I'm also going to, on my personal blog, publish a reminiscence of Seminex that goes into a little more detail than we can possibly cover in a podcast. But the heart of the matter, again, to focus on the theology, was that after a yellow journalism rag called Christian News, edited by a neo-Nazi named Hermann Otten, had stirred up a furor about the teaching of historical criticism at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, uh, Jacob Preuss and his colleagues concocted a statement of scriptural... Sorry, Jacob Price was the president of the Missouri Synod at that time. Newly elected, I think. And, okay, he, um, right. and uh, he had faculty colleagues who helped him compose a document called A Statement of Scriptural and Confessional Principles. Now, there's a lot of um, stuff in this thing. And again, we'll put it in the show notes. People should go read it for themselves. But as I read it then, and as I reread it for this podcast, I see this document making two chief critical claims. The first is this, that the miraculously inerrant Bible, true to fact, in all that it says in all respects, down to the historical reality of a first couple of human beings named Adam and Eve about 7,000 years ago, and up through Jonah and his whale. Uh, that miraculously inerrant Bible uh, is foundational. And second, that a confessional church has the right to assert this or reassert it as needed 
and indeed to enforce it, by judging against doctrine not to be tolerated in the church of God. That's actually a phrase that comes from the Book of Concord. And this document was adopted by the Missouri Synod and Convention, which then authorized an investigation of the Concordia Seminary faculty to check for their compliance. So that's that material became evident to us by the time I was a senior in college. And we were thir- we were in college, you know, all of us were graduating and expecting to go to seminary. I was expecting to go to Concordia St. Louis. Uh, uh, and um, uh, so this document was published and available, and we were all thinking about it, talking about it. And like I said, theologically, I think those are the two chief critical theological claims. So let's just talk about it for a minute, because I always knew about this statement, but just for this episode was the first time I read it. And I have to say, my first reaction is, this is a bizarre document. (laughs) And there are a number of aspects that are bizarre about it, but I I think the two most... um, powerful reactions I had is first that this document cannot possibly do what it sets out to do like or or what 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 is intended by it cannot possibly happen so like throughout it 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 identifies a number of interpretive errors and a lot of them as you mentioned relate to any any denial of the direct word by word verbal inspiration of the bible but there are others as well like uh, well of course lady pastors are a horrifying prospect and um a few i think things related to evolutionary science and so forth. But like, as it lays out its arguments, its goal is in order to prevent these errors, we are going to strangle the church and its theology. I mean, it's so, and I guess that's the other thing is besides the fact that it couldn't actually do what it wanted to do, I was struck by how fearful and paranoid it is. I mean, the the irony is that it's trying to defend the word of God, but at the end of it, I, I thought it it has no confidence in the word of God. It doesn't actually think the word of God ha- has any power to convince, to convert or persuade or to indeed... Um, uh, cancel out heresy itself. So in order to protect this, this precious thing, it has to hedge it around with so many, just, I don't know, like intellectually, and but also like ecclesiastically impossible to defend things. And then it gives itself these weird little outs. It's just a very, very strange document. And let me say that any church document whose second paragraph begins, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and that all who die without faith in him are eternally damned. Like, you know, nothing good is going to follow off of that. That They have to go to <laughs> damnation in paragraph two. I, I don't think this document even grasps what Luther meant by faith. That's that's a separate thing. But I, I just, <laughs> yes, of course, it, it's about the direct verbal inspiration, which is itself a bizarre kind of claim. But I don't, what were they trying to do? And how did they think they would do it? I, I can only think that this is just a front for something else, which I, I suppose is kind of your point, right? Yeah, you know, there was a, in the liturgy of the Lutheran churches at that time, there was what we called the collect for the word, that thy word as becometh it may not be bound, but have free 
course. Let me, <laughs> let me start over. That's okay. You can feel this deeply. It was a pretty seminal event in your life. All right. You know, um, we remember praying at that time in the old liturgy, the collect for the word, that thy word as become with it may not be bound, but have free course to be preached to the joy and edification of Christ's holy people. And that's what they were trying to strangle. Sarah, you were the, used the metaphor of strangulation. That was the attempt to strangle the freedom um, of the word. And I would just mention here as an aside, in the same time period, Ernst Kasemann, the German Lutheran theologian, uh, responded to a similar kind of movement in the German churches, the No Other Gospel movement and published his little book, Jesus Means Freedom. And that's what I think they found so threatening. Yeah, well, I, like I said, there, there's a deep undercurrent of, of fear and paranoia in this. And I mean, it's it's dreadfully ironic because a number of the errors they identify, like, I'm no fan of either. I mean, you know, I, I don't understand direct verbal inspiration at all. Like, when I hear that, I think, like, um, God whispering to Matthew, okay, here, I want you to change this word in this portion of Mark, cre Mark creating, like, an ever so slightly <laughs> incompatible story with her, his version, and then I can test all the believers to see what whether they believe it all is equally and absolutely historically true as if we had a video camera <laughs> taping it. Like, what? what is this doctrine and what is it trying to do? It's so weird. So, I mean, uh, th that I find useless. But, I mean, it identifies errors that I think are also errors. It's just that, like you said, that, that impulse to strangle and bind that I find so off-putting, but also simply impossible. And if they were afraid that, well, I mean, I think this will have to come back to as we now move even to the Seminex and the later emergence of the ELCA story, because if they were afraid that these errors would give rise to a Lutheran church like what the ELCA has become, then ironically, they bear responsibility for fomenting the conditions for a church like the ELCA to emerge. Like, you you create what you fear by your paranoid attention paid to it. And I can't help but think that precisely because of the fear of these errors, they they fanned the little spark into a, a blaze. Yeah, I've often thought that too. Uh, you, I just want to, though, make one more qualifying remark. Um, I mentioned there were two critical claims in a statement of scriptural and confessional principles. And the second was that a church has the right to judge doctrine. And I actually agree with this. I don't dispute that there is false teaching. In fact, I think, empirically speaking, the Christian churches across the board are full of them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the reason why we do theology is in a um, reasoned and, and uh, evidence-based and uh, logically argumentative way to make judgments about theology, theology that's true to the gospel and theology that's false to the gospel. So I don't dispute those things, and I don't dispute the right of a church to judge doctrine. Um, I mentioned the Barman Declaration, which was a profound judgment on doctrine of a confessing church. So I'm, those 
the Missouri Synod was was uh, in its a statement was asserting that, and I think that's a kind of a denser ecclesiology, uh, which to a degree, with qualification, I agree with. Okay, well, again, the uh, the the poorly conducted <laughs> attempt at discipline that may have been a, a cover for, as you said, other kinds of demagoguery and skullduggery. That is that is um, a, another topic. Um, and again, we'll refer readers to the excellent historical work by James Berkey in his book, Power Politics in the Missouri Synod. But now I think we need to get to the part, Dad, that you are involved in on the other side and the response to all of this. So take it from the walkout, or I think it even goes back a little farther, right? At the time of the student walkout in St. Louis in 1974 in February, I was finishing my last year of college at Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now let me make a note here. Most folks nowadays will think of Fort Wayne as the other Concordia Seminary, the more conservative one than the one in St. Louis today. Ah, but in my time, Fort Wayne Senior College had been for more than 15 years the crown jewel of the whole Concordia College system. As a result, those um, Preuss-aligned critics called it, and I'm quoting, the seedbed of liberalism. Now, friends, this is the 1970 Missouri Synod. And Concordia Senior College was liberal only within that already very narrow spectrum of things. <laughs> and it was genuinely liberal in the sense that, in the sense of the liberal arts, academic excellence, especially in the humanities and the languages, and of course, openness to the much bigger world of God's creating and redeeming. I loved Concordia Senior College. I'm on a Facebook page for Concordia Senior College of, of many of us who were educated there and look back with fondness on this gem of an educational experience. Might, might I also add that you met your lovely spouse of almost 50 years, who just so happens also to be my mother. That is very true. And out of 470 uh, students uh, of which 99% were men, and seven female students, of which your mother was one, I was one of the lucky, one of the few lucky and chosen. <laughs> you had to compete for that distinction. <laughs> yes, and I think I earned it too. Anyway, um, <laughs> here's what happened. Um, I was the editor of the college newspaper called The Spire. And as all this turmoil was happening in St. Louis, uh, in the spring of 74, I wrote an editorial advocating that my uh, classmates, the graduates forthcoming, should go to Seminex. When the word of this editorial, however, reached the ears of the college president, I was summoned to the office along with a couple of my editorial assistants. And the president, I think his name was Bredemeyer, pleaded with me not to publish this editorial. He said, this will destroy the college's chances of surviving uh, in the civil war going on in the Senate. And at length, I agreed to a compromise uh, in which there would be uh, two other uh, editorials appearing side by side advocating 
for graduates to do other things, including one uh, by Wally Meyer, uh, the son of the famous uh, radio preacher or grandson, I can't remember which, um, advocating uh, attendance at uh, what was left of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And you would say overall Concordia Fort Wayne college students were much more sympathetic to the students and faculty who walked out than the ones who stayed on at 801. I think the overwhelming majority of us headed to St. Louis to Seminax. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, But I really regret succumbing to the compromise. It did nothing to save Concordia Senior College. The same forces that had judged uh, the faculty majority Uh, of false doctrine without any due process, um, uh, uh, then proceeded to shut down Concordia Senior College and hand hand the campus over uh, to the practical seminary that hitherto had been in Springfield, Illinois. Oh, right. That's where your dad went, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, My World War II veteran dad went there. Yeah. Right. So anyway, uh, that, that was... I, I relate this because that that's how I experienced this trauma, um, seeing the the best educational experience I had had in those four years of college uh, being destroyed by these um, 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 know-nothings, if I can put it that way. They were so afraid of open minds, curious minds, inquiring minds, uh, urgently facing up to the big trouble the world was in and challenging the status quo in the world and in the church to do something about it. They just wanted that squashed. And that's how I experienced the uh, the uh, Preuss Putsch. Now, um, let me just tell a quick story about uh, Seminex. Uh, one of my old professors, Edward Schrader, who I think you have a personal memory of now, <laughs> yes, I remember their visit when we lived in Slovakia. Well, and I should say before that, I, I, let me just uh, briefly interject myself into this history. I was born in St. Louis, and the reason why I was born in St. Louis because you were a student at Seminex at the time. So, like, my origin story is this ground zero schism between... Um, it, right in the heart of American Lutheranism. And so I grew up very much weaned on church politics and all their their ugly ugly faces the, across the whole spectrum. And the name of Ed Schrader came up more than once. So I, I knew him by reputation before I met him in person when he and his wife visited us in Slovakia when I was already in my late teens. Right. And we put them up in a little apartment adjacent to ours. And so you, we interacted with them quite a bit. I talked with them a lot at that time. And I just recently discovered that right around the same time, uh, he put out some 25-year reflections on this event that we're talking about today, Seminex. Um, And in them, he told a story that featured me that I was not aware of until I read this just a couple of weeks ago, when the Crossings community, which Schrader and Bertram had founded in the aftermath of Seminex, republished uh, Schrader's writings and his memoir about the origins of Seminex. And um, um, Ed uh, tells a little story in there about uh, students criticizing the Department of Systematic Theology. And one particular agitator who was 
criticizing Bertram and Schrader for being rather narrowly focused on the theology of Werner Ehlert um, and uh, his law gospel uh, hermeneutic, as Schrader called it, uh, and arguing that there were other legitimate Lutheran voices which we were not being taught, and that uh, we should add um, a professor from Fort Wayne that whose life and whose je- job was in jeopardy, James Childs, uh, to the uh, to the faculty. And uh, they even he says they even agreed to that and supported the idea, um, uh, but. Uh, um, he said, uh, this one student agitator for this proposition, uh, and he, I'm quoting, who is now an internationally respected theologian, end quote, <laughs> um, 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 also said that the kind of theology that Schrader and Bertram were teaching um, was simply... Um, uh, supportive of the American religious establishment. In other words, the liberal Protestant mainline. And um, he he just reported that critique of mine um, um, and said kind of laconically, well, who knows, question uh, mark. And, and the editor of this uh, document rightly identifies me in the footnote, as the uh, as the reference, uh, and I, I just find it fascinating that this occurred right about the time that they visited us for quite a period, at least a week or more, uh, in Slovakia. Mm. So that, that maybe that that unearthed the memory. Do you remember making this critique specifically about the American religious establishment? I do, and I don't, um, um, because I don't remember it quite the way he phrases it. Um, I remember saying that um, that um, for all of Ed Schrader's uh, political apocalypticism and sympathy with liberation theology, um, uh, he suddenly had a blinders on when it came to the way in which mainline Christianity in America uh, was in cahoots with one version of American triumphalism. Uh, and and he didn't see uh, what I was calling at the time with, with uh, the evangelical Catholics. He didn't really see the Lutheran difference and the way it, it cut against the grain of the whole fundamentalist modernist split uh, in American Protestantism. So I'll just, you know, I say more about that in the blog post I'm going to put up. So I'll refer people to that. Well, I mean, it, it makes a kind of sense and in a way, as we'll see, it kind of foreshadows where the downstream church of that would go, because if the terms of the debate that are forced on you are fundamentalist modernist, and it seems that the Missouri Synod by and large sided with the fundamentalist side, then you would almost instinctually, and not even realizing what you're doing, go to the other side of that divide. Well, if I'm not a fundamentalist, I must be a modernist. But well, I think what you're saying is what you were trying to get at theologically is what if we reject this framing of the debate altogether and say the fundamentalist modernist quarrel is the way it is because it's fundamentally a false set of concepts and distinctions anyway. Let's exit the quarrel and find a different way of addressing what it is we need to do as church. Namely, 
The church is one foundation, and Jesus Christ is her Lord. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Sarah. That's very clear. Thank you. That's exactly right. I'll just mention that uh, Kurt Hendel, a, a, a professor of Lutheran history at LSTC, who was with the Seminex faculty that walked out, published an afterword to Schrader's memoir. And the, the editors included it because Schrader tells a story of Seminex's failure. He thinks that uh, the the community lost its nerve and hankered after the flesh pots of Egypt and gave up the struggle and dispersed into these other uh, seminaries and the future ELCA. Um, How long did Seminex last after it got started? I think it disbanded in 1983. Uh, so oh, 10 so years, not even maybe. 10 years. That's very short. Not even yeah. 10 years, yeah. I think that's right. Uh, by that time, I was gone, so it's not fresh in my memory. But Hendel tells a story that was also told a lot by John Teachin. Oh, you should say who John Teachin is. Oh, John Teachin was the Semin Concordia Seminary president that was fired in January um, of 1974 and precipitated the student walkout. Um or suspended, I guess, rather than fired. And as time wore on, Hendel and Tijan tell a story then of how we're trying to figure out what is God doing to us in this exile from the Missouri Synod. And they said, uh, basically, God is leading us to the formation of Lutheran Union, minus the Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, and anybody on that side of the spectrum, but Lutheran Union of the rest of American Lutheranism in the future, uh, ELCA, I find this to be a rationalization of a very bad situation. Um, and I published a very critical uh, review in Lutheran Forum of Tijan's book about this some years ago. And, uh, well, that also started a precedent that every time the there is a self-inflicted disaster of the Lutheran Church, we always claim it is God doing a new thing. Rather than our screwing up, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Ex exactly, right. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I, when I was a pastor in, in Emmanuel Delhi, upstate New York, we were affiliated with the AELC uh, at that time, the Refugee Synod. American Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, or Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches. That was the 100,000 or so that left the Missouri Synod. Congregations that congregations and members that exited Missouri after Seminex happened, right? Right. So I was rostered there, and there was a pastoral conference, and John Tejan was there. And um, we were talking during one of the evening fellowship hours, and... Um, I said, John, we're going in different directions. Oh, did he take umbrage at that? No, we're not. We're definitely not going in different directions. <laughs> and so we got into this kind of debate. And I just have this memory of us seated uh, opposite each other in the middle of a hall and dozens of people cir circulating around us like we were two gladiators in the <laughs> ring, you know, debating whether we were going in different directions. Well, anyway, so I just... And what what exactly would you say was the direction he was going in that you weren't, and why did that upset him? Do you remember the content specifically? I think that 
the terrible role played by a certain faction of the AELC delegation to the Commission for a New Lutheran Church, led by uh, Elwin Ewald and uh, fellow travelers. They were just filled with this spirit of radical democracy, which basically, ecclesiologically, comes down to anti-clericalism. And their whole thing was that we're never again going to have a church dominated by theologians. We're never again going to have a church dominated by clergy. We're going to have all these quotas, uh, gender quotas, ethnic quotas, and lay quotas, to make sure that no future assembly of the ELCA will ever be guided by theology. (laughs) And that's what they got. And the irony of it is, is that John Tejan then was elected to be the first bishop of the Metro Chicago Synod, and he was torpedoed and had to leave office abruptly and prematurely and um, in, the, in the new church that he had helped to create. Right. So what, instead of getting a rule by theologians, they got rules by unaccountable bureaucrats who then in turn can manipulate the theologically uneducated lay people and quota people to get the results that the bureaucrats want. I'm afraid that's the dirty truth, yep. Yeah, which is mirrored in larger governmental patterns, but we'll we'll set that aside for the time being. Yeah, that's enough of my story about this. If people are curious, they can read the longer account I've written on my personal page. Well, just to kind of of bring it into to where we're standing now, I'll just briefly say that you, you mentioned this commission for a new Lutheran church. So in the, the 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of energy among American Lutherans to see if all of us could merge together. It was kind of the age of merger, the kind of the rise of the big corporation post-war. Uh, there was this, I, I think, rather delusional sense that, you know, if if Lutherans could consolidate and then have a, a bigger um, witness and presence in the American religious landscape. We were the ones who were going to bridge between the big Catholic population and the big Protestant population because we had the best of both worlds and the bad of neither. And what always happens with mergers is that the church starts to fixate on itself rather than the content of its preaching or its mission to actually bring people to Jesus Christ. And, um, And then the real fault lines start to emerge. So Missouri is the first one to exit that process uh, because of what happens here. But then the what had become the ALC, American Lutheran Church, and the LCA, Lutheran Church in America, which basically had different, most kind of different um, ethnic backgrounds as well as regional locations. Um, they became the two big players, but then the AELC, which is this tiny denomination of ex-Missouri people, they were they became the third party in the formation of what became the ELCA. But disproportionately influential. I I remember reading somewhere that in the early period of the ELCA, which was officially formed in 1988, something like 60% of ELCA bishops were ex-Missouri through the AELC. So you can imagine if your new, new Lutheran church is being uh, almost by a two-thirds um, margin led by traumatized people who ha- were... Um, expelled uh, for all intents and purposes from a fundamentalist church. I mean, you you could practically write everything that's going to happen afterwards, and that's more or less what happened. Yeah, I got to qualify what you're saying, though, with a few comments. I think that um, there was just this massive brain drain from the Missouri Synod 
that occurred with the exile, with Seminex. And these uh, pastors uh, and leaders who left the Missouri Synod were uh, uh, educated in a much stronger way uh, and had a much better uh, vocational preparation for pastoral ministry. And I think the cream rose to the top in the ELCA with this generation of leaders. Um, One of my classmates, John Roth, um, has been the bishop in southern Illinois for a number of years. He's an example of what I'm talking about, just a high-quality individual. And there were so so many of them across, across the early ELCA. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that they weren't necessarily qualified or even excellently qualified. I'm saying that they were scarred. You know, I've I've always joked that I instantly know a Seminex graduate when I meet one because the mark of Cain is on his forehead. Like I, <laughs> I think because I grew up with you, I have an immediate intuition of people whose early early life and ministry was marked by this experience, and that that is specifically what I wanted to call out as having a huge disproportionate impact on on what would become the ELCA. I'll gr- I'll grant that um, to to this extent that I've known many of my uh, classmates uh, from Seminex who have spent the rest of their lives trying to prove that they never came from the Missouri Synod, and uh, uh, for all the critical things I say about the Missouri Synod, uh, I don't regret at all uh, that I came from the Missouri Synod. I learned to love the Bible in the Missouri Senate. I learned to love the liturgy in the Missouri Senate. I learned uh, to love um, the ministry of the church in the Missouri Senate. Um, And uh, to me, the great tragedy is that Missouri turned away from those virtues in this cowardly move to fundamentalism. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention is that the first act uh, in the realignment that you were describing that produced the AELC, the Missouri Synod had been an altar and pulpit fellowship with the old ALC. That was in the the 1960s. And one of the first things the Preuss people did was to break fellowship with the ALC. And there's a family quarrel there too. There were Preusses in Missouri and Preusses in the ALC. I I know some. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know some ALC Preusses. Yeah, David Preuss was the bishop of the old ALC. <laughs> that was a cousin of Jacob Preuss or something like that, right? Anyway, so I just wanted to make a few qualifications there. Um, uh, and even the trauma can be, even trauma can be channeled in a positive way. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, this kind of lifelong taking of revenge against the oppressor that you we witnessed in, in some individuals. Okay, well, now what? Here we are, 50 years later. Well, you pointed out earlier that when we have this kind of polarization into two denominations, it propels each of them into greater extremity and downright lunacy. I said idiocy. <laughs> well, I too, well, I'm calling it lunacy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're able to point at the lunatic extremes of the other in their own defense. So... Do you want transgender pastors? No, then join the Missouri Senate. Do you want heresy trials for people who deny the direct, literal, verbal inspiration of the Bible? No, then join the ELCA. These are not good alternatives, folks. (laughs) 
And I, I have to say, you know, like I, I have a, a somewhat different experience than I think most pastors on either side because precisely because of our family, because actually all four of my grandparents stayed within the Missouri Synod, even as you and mom left it. But I, I'm going to tell, I'm going to expose it right here. I was always welcome to take communion at the Missouri Synod churches of my grandparents. And I did. And they communed at our churches. And I'm very grateful for that. But, and also with um, your work and then my work with Lutheran Forum, we have re remained in regular contact with pastors of the Missouri Synod. We continue to be related to pastors of the Missouri Synod. So I've always seen both sides and it makes me really crazy how, how um, recklessly slanderous each uh, pastors of either denomination can be toward the other. It's so easy. It's so convenient. And like I said, each side gives good reason for the other slander because we're polarized, extreme, and stupid. But I mean, <laughs> to not be able to see the larger pattern at work and to never correct it, as we so often lament these days with everybody in their own echo chamber. I mean, we've, we've been, Dad, you and I have been seeing this echo chamber for much longer and the inability to recognize the humanity and the Christianity of people on the other side because they are affiliated with lunacy or idiocy, as the case may be. It's, um, but the fact is that neither Missouri nor the ELCA could be what they are without the other. So as much as they try to distance themselves from each other, they, they, absolutely need each other to be this kind of um, distorted mirror image of what they think they are. And as a result, they're both um, hemorrhaging denominations, um, suffering a great deal. You know, I, I would just echo what you were saying, Sarah, that I have um, theological friends in the Missouri Synod, um, and I will not name them for the fear of getting them in trouble because it's me in this podcast naming them, you know, but I, I do have uh, uh, dear friends and colleagues in the Missouri Senate, good scholars and theologians whose work I appreciate and learn from. So let's just leave it at that. Okay. And I think it's also fair to say we also have dear friends and colleagues within our own ELCA, as much as we are oh. critical of the denomination. We have friends here too, and we are glad to be um, standing together still with them in this place. That, that's right. And neither you or I, for all our criticism, have left the ELCA. So we're going down with the ship. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I think this is really the, the place to end because, you know, if... if you say that there are two crazy denominations that need each other. Well, there are other and smaller options, and neither of us went with those options, um, maybe for slightly different reasons. But I, I think it's worth saying, like, we are by no means the only clergy faced with this terrible dilemma. And, you know, <laughs> when you, I, I wasn't really joking when I compared the walkout from 801 to the walkout uh, from the Czechoslovak government in 1948, because the more people leave, the more you hand it over to the forces of reaction or revolution, depending on which side you are suffering from. And I, I think for me, there was, um, at an earlier point in the ELCA's history, there was a real strong question of, can I even in good conscience stay clergy here? And on what grounds would I stay clergy here? And I, I, I have two thoughts on that. The first is um, that 
I think there is a big difference between walking out and being kicked out. And the way I was always taught my Lutheran church history was that we didn't leave, we were expelled. And that makes a difference. And other Protestants left, but we would have stayed, we were forced out. And there is a genuine moral and ecclesiological difference between those two moves. And so I came to the conclusion, well, I am going to do what my my uh, my Luther did, which is I will stay until I am forced out, but I am not going to walk out. They're going to have to exert their violence against me if they don't want me here anymore. And so I guess, Dad, putting it to you that way, and since the story that we're telling 50 years later has to do with a walkout, which you said chose not to be kicked out, but to walk out first, I wonder, I mean, is that where you land too, that it's better to be kicked out than to walk out? Yeah, I will never be a part of, of uh, initiating another church schism. Um, as often as I've been tempted to leave the ELCA, uh, that principle that I will not be a part of a schism um, has stayed with me, and for the reasons that you suggest, um, I, I would th- to wrap up this episode. If I've made the case that Seminex was a theological event. And the event was the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And if any listeners agree with that and think that that is the guiding light for what we are to do in this uh, fractured ecclesiological situation of a sinfully divided church of Christ, contrary to his will that we all be one, if if you are with me on this, that the proper ecclesiology is that of a confessing church where the confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. If you are with me with that, then I have the following advice for you. All right, let's hear it. First, wear your denominational cloak lightly. Don't take it so seriously. Your ministry and your congregation or church are not franchise operations of denominational (laughs) corporate headquarters. And to sustain yourself in this posture, fortify yourself theologically, think for yourself, and act above all prayerfully and conscientiously before God. That's my first piece of advice. Yeah, that that's really good. And I, I think I would just say you can't not be denominational. And even non-denominational churches are denominational. They're either part of larger networks or they are just their own micro-denomination of one congregation. You don't avoid the problem. So I think we can accept that the denominations are left-hand kingdom, outward forms of the church Um, They solve a certain number of problems that need to be solved practically on this sinful and fallen earth. So we we have to deal with them one way or another. But I think what you say is wear it lightly and, and act conscientiously before God above all. Right. And then the second thing I would say, again, looking back to the model of the confessing church in Germany, uh, look for ecumenical partners, which may appear in the most surprising places. This kind of conflict we're describing today through the lens of Seminex has versions running through all kinds of denominations, especially in the West and uh, in, in our North American context. And you will find allies and friends uh, in places you never imagined. And you might have to stretch your uh, Lutheran uh, theological commitments a little bit 
to recognize in these others genuine uh, fellow confessors, uh, but do that. Look for ecumenical partners and build relationships uh, wherever they may appear. In my own local community, I've been urging my pastor to forge a relationship with the Black Baptist Church right across the street from us. It would just be a marvelous and edifying interaction between two vibrant congregations which share um, a a conviction. Um, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. And mutatis mutandis, I would say any of our listeners who are not Lutherans do the same thing. Stretch your Reformed, Episcopalian, um, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever boundaries. Um, And the nice thing about making ecumenical friends is that you cannot have any power because uh, across these boundaries, you aren't anything. You don't have any institution behind you. It really has to be a common confession of Jesus Christ that draws you together rather than, you know, retaking or doing a new long march through the institutions. And I think that is a very important training in keeping the main thing the main thing. Yeah, I, my, I agree with that, Sarah. That's got to be the focus. Um, And that's exactly the kind of focus a confessing movement, a real confessing movement through American Christianity would have. So in that spirit, I would just say finally to our listeners, don't despair. Uh, It's the way of God that a corrupt church will be judged and it will finally collapse of its own weightlessness theologically. There are still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So courage, courage, courage. Okay, and I I will add my my final thought here. As I said, there were two reasons that I decided to to stick with my own denomination. And the other one is the passage from Matthew 18, which has been much abused. Uh, But I'm going to read it out and say what I came to understand about it. So Jesus is teaching, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Dad, I believe that verse has been used a lot to smooth over um, corrupt forms of church discipline and sending and disciplining people, sending people away and disciplining them. But what I realized at some point studying this is what does the term Gentile and what does the term tax collector mean with Matthew's go- mean within the context of Matthew's gospel? And that completely altered the meaning of the passage for me because Matthew's gospel is the one that starts out with the Magi, i.e. Gentiles, coming to worship the Lord and ends with the Great Commission to go out and preach to all nations, which means Gentiles. And likewise, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus reclined at table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. That's in chapter 9. And then later in chapter 21, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And what I realized at that point is that what Jesus is saying here, when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, he is saying, start over. Start at the very beginning of proclaiming the gospel to this person, because even if they're inside the church, they don't know the gospel. And for me, that says that every 
Every faithful person is a missionary, first of all, to their own church, including whatever corruption it may suffer from. The point is not to leave, abandon, discipline, evict, expel, or on the other side to walk out. The call is to start over again from the very beginning of the good news. And I think that is the the um, encouraging mandate given to people who feel very much alienated from their denominations. You are a missionary. Tell them the gospel. If they're making these mistakes, it's because they don't know the gospel and God knows they need to hear it because there's no worse thing to be than a church person who doesn't know the gospel. Amen, sister. I agree. All right. Well, then next time on the show, we are going to leaven the lump and lighten the load by talking about the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.